With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. Welcome to Know Your Options, the measured risk podcast. The ultimate guide to navigating the volatile nature of the markets while managing risk purposefully. Join us as we challenge the theory behind traditional asset allocation and dive into the mathematics of investing. Whether you are a seasoned investor or just starting out, this podcast offers valuable insights and practical advice to help you make informed decisions and manage your money wisely. So grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and let's dive into the world of calculated risks together. All right, everybody, this is Larry Kriesmer and my partner, Bernard Sorofsky. We're here today with the Know Your Options Measured Risk Portfolios podcast. And our special guest today is Fernando Reyes. He's with EP Wealth Advisors, I think primarily located up in Los Angeles. And he's going to share his thoughts about his uh, process and transition from working early on in the banking industry to migrating over into a full-service RIA with all the attending bells and whistles that brings to the table. So, Fernando, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So, um, we typically start with just a little history. If you want to tell us maybe, I don't know if there was education that you had in school that kind of got you toward here. It certainly wasn't in my case. I have an English <laughs> writing degree, which was nothing to do with financial services, but that's, so it didn't really point me in the direction. But how about yourself? Well, I went to UCSB for my undergrad, but much like you, I was a history major. I actually was going to go into law originally. And as I started studying for the LSAT, I quickly pivoted because I didn't make sense to me. And I felt like the world didn't need another lawyer, but I knew I wanted to get into a service where I was helping people. So I naturally kind of fell into planning and advising, started my career with uh, Wells Fargo and their private banking group out in Beverly Hills, and then migrated over to City National Bank and their uh, entertainment group, private banking group uh, in Beverly Hills as well, just down the street. And then I migrated over to Union Bank, and I was the lead planner, private banking planner for all of LA and San Diego. So I covered a big territory, worked with close to 75 advisors. As I was working with all of these advisors, I quickly realized, you know, I'm probably better than 90% of them, 95% of them. Um, So I looked for a better option, a better solution. And so I went to the independent route which is my current firm, EP Wealth Advisors. It's an RIA based out in Torrance um, in California, fiduciary based. And they manage roughly $22 billion or so in assets. And I work on a team that oversees about a billion or so. That's great. We just covered about 20 years of, of time, I think in about <laughs> in two minutes. So let's back that up a little bit because I'm always curious. It's, I had no idea I was going to be in financial services, but I ended up with a internship in college making cold calls for Dean Witter. That'll help age me. <laughs> so, <laughs> so there still is college, but there's no Dean Witter. So yeah. when you when you graduate and you're looking around, I mean, was there just like an ad in the paper for working at a bank? Or I mean, how did you get how did that happen? There was a friend of mine that was working for Wells Fargo at the time and she knew me. We went to school together and she said, you know, you're really great with numbers, you're really great with people. You should try to get into Wells Fargo and I, you know, I can get you a job there and I think you'd be a great fit. And naturally I kind of came right in and, you know, 
fit really well in that group. I really like helping people. I really like talking to clients. I'm very easygoing and straightforward and very honest. So people naturally just uh, like to work with me. Yeah. How, how did you overcome in the early days in particular the, the lack of gray hair? Yeah, no, well, no. The, for me, look at I, I have a lot of gray hair. So I now was, you do. Now you do. No, in fairness, I was very gray, very early. So, oh, that, so. I, so when I started, I think I was twenty four, twenty five. Had a, almost a full head of gray hair. Oh, so I, I naturally just looked older, and you know, I was able to talk to clients and have no problem. It, it was never an issue about my age at the time. So what we've learned so far is you need a friend in the business and you need to have gray hair in your 20s. Yes. <laughs> and you're ideally suited to get into the high network market immediately. It helped. I mean, that's that's all the experience, right? They always thought I was older than I was. I dressed the part. I looked the part. I talked the part. I mean, I had managers at the time say, wow, you know, you've, you sound like you've been in this business for, you know, 10, 15 years. And, and I'm like, I just really started here. Wow. So, your role when you started out there, what was your role? I mean, I... Were you making cold calls or did you start out at a more senior level than that? What was your uh, Yeah, I, I started out as a senior, they called it a licensed banker. So it was a hybrid between like a private banker and a financial advisor. So you were able to do loans, uh, but you were also able to do securities and mutual funds. So a lot of cold calling, you know, you know, Wells Fargo was kind of notorious for that. So, you know, every day on the phone, you had to call a certain amount of people, 20, 30 people and, you know, try to get appointments and leads and things like that. So I was very successful because like, I'm very good on the phone. Naturally, back then, um, people answered the phone a lot more. So it was a lot easier yeah. to make cold calls. Nowadays, it's completely different. Yeah, I don't want to do too much PTSD for the past, you know, because we've all gone through that happily. But I was always uh, really fundamentally bitterly jealous of people that were in these positions like yours because there was at least a fishbowl to be targeting. Part of the advantage of being independent was you had, a, you know, the whole world is your oyster, but the disadvantage is that you had the whole world and not something defined. So I remember being very, very challenging. So, yeah, I mean, you would you would have people walk in. So you would get those clients, but also you get you could see somebody make a million dollar deposit and you call them. Hey, Mr. So-and-so, I see you made this million dollar deposit. You know, here are other options that we have at the bank. Is there something I can help you with? You know, can we set up an appointment to discuss your options? Naturally, it was very easy to get appointments yeah. to do yeah. so. You, so it was it was well, more. It tells me I'm even more jealous about this already. What's <laughs> 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 today, now, Larry? You have yeah. to get over no, I'm not doing it again. <laughs> I, I said, you get one way to do it, and I did it. No, but I mean, this is actually very good advice, even though for people starting out today, it really is. Yeah, it's, that's why I, that's why I drilled back down onto it because I think there is a tremendous amount of learning and training that the big big um, entities or the big uh, companies can offer you as a, as a new person. And it does come with the attending ability to, to get trained and get some experience and, and potentially work on some big fish right out the, right out the door. Yeah. Which is, which is, which is great. I mean, so what have we learned? So gray hair and go, go with a recognized name. Yes, exactly. All right. So one, one out of two ain't bad. No, that's true. <laughs> but yeah, over the phone, they don't know how old you are, right? That's they right. Know how you communicate. No, that's true. Uh, but the name gives you a lot of cachet. The title obviously gives you a lot of cachet. And then I would, you know, I, I would be very methodical. So I would, I would, you know, bribe the tellers with, you know, Hey, if you refer me these business or let me know when these clients are coming in, or you see these types of transactions, you know, I'll buy you coffee or I'll buy you lunch. Right. And so anytime there was these big, you know, $3 million or $5 million uh, deposits, 
you know, I was able to jump in and get in early with those clients and, and call them ahead of time and say, hey, you know, I'm the local person. Here's what I want to do for you. Here are the options. Um, and like I said, back then, people answered the phone, so it was a little bit easier. Yeah, exactly. So, so talking about the banking channel, I mean, so clearly one of the biggest, one of the big advantages is that insight that you can get into what's actually going on in in the you know, deposit side of, of the house. What advice would you have for someone starting out today in light of your own experiences and how might you guide them? I presume for sake of discussion that this was a, a, an offspring of yours that you were talking to. How would you guide them in in what you see in today's world starting out? Yeah, I would use all the data that's available nowadays. I mean, back then we had reports and we can see deposit reports and we can see um, reports for loans and refinances and things of that nature. But nowadays you have even more of that information. So taking advantage of it, a lot of people would just overlook it. I was looking at those reports daily, daily deposits, daily withdrawals, right? Someone's making big deposits, big withdrawals. Those are big life events. So having the ability to call on that and, and, and expressing, hey, I can help you with these events. You're a business owner. You just sold this business. Has anybody ever talked to you about these options that we have here? Has anybody talked to you about taxes or CDs or investing, right? But mostly just focusing on trying to get them to give you time, right? Just an appointment. Can we just set up a time to talk and to discuss these things? I don't want to take up much of your time right now, but I just want to let you know I have these services available for you if you have a couple of minutes in the future. Yeah, that's great. What do you think, uh, do you see any disadvantages starting out in that banking channel? I mean, obviously, you know, you've mentioned a couple of big advantages. What do you think are things that are disadvantages? Well, the big disadvantage is everyone just thinks you're a salesman. Rightly so, right? You're just a big salesman. You're just trying to sell them a product, right? I'm Wells Fargo. I'm trying to sell you a Wells Fargo product. I'm JP Morgan. I'm trying to sell you a JP Morgan product. So that is the big disadvantage because everyone thinks that you're just trying to sell them and, and, and rightfully so, right? Depending on the type of route you go, whether it's managed money or transactional money on the brokerage side, people think you're just trying to sell them. They, they just think you're a used car salesman or, hey, I got a guy or no, I'm not interested right now. Uh, mm-hmm. you, that was usually the biggest hurdle to overcome. What about the transition? I imagine the banks have their client relationship pretty well locked up that it's theirs, not yours. Yes. Um, so that also must be sort of agonizing or scary to you know develop a clientele and then decide to go somewhere else. So talk about that and how do you, how do you, uh, make the calculus to figure out when it's time to do that or how did you go through that process yourself? Well, it's really hard because the clients really are tied to the firm. They are really tied to the name. So to get them to leave outside of them, especially when they have their mortgages and Wells Fargo is very good with that. Um, they usually say that if you have more than five products, the retention rate is north of 90%. So they try to get you to have a bank account, a savings account, a CD, a brokerage account, a credit card, right? The more products you have, the less likely you are to leave. So they're very methodical in that nature. So getting them to leave or getting them to kind of join with you is very hard because you know, they have their trenches into you. I have to change my direct deposit if I'm going to follow you. I have to change my brokerage account. So it's really hard to do that. You have to really solidify the relationship. People really have to trust you and not the organization um, for them to follow you. Yeah, that's that's a, that's a huge. Yeah, I was actually thinking would be more tied up with some sort of a 
you know, you, you can't have them or is that just not really enforceable in California? It is, it is enforceable. So, I mean, that is part of the drawback to doing it because they will come after you. They'll send you a cease and desist. And so some of them are not able to go, but if clients are just gung ho and they really do want to follow you, it's really nothing they can do to stop you. Fair enough. So you've, you've landed, you've gone through the banking channels and you've picked up knowledge and information training on the way. You've now migrated over to EP Wealth Advisors. And so discuss your role there. How do you, what's your typical week like, or how do, how do you work with the organization in uh, working with your clients? Well, I mean, the gamut kind of spreads across everyone's balance sheet. So we manage uh, money for our clients, but a lot of the planning that we do is for assets outside of the man the, the money that we manage. So it's their entire balance sheet. So uh, someone might be selling a business this week or someone might be inheriting money or, um, you know, there was a death in the family and how do we administer the estate? Uh, so when that is the case, then we're working with their CPA, we're working with their state planning attorney. Um, we're working with them just to kind of walk through this process. Really, people just need someone that they can trust to walk them through this because they've never sold a business before. They've never retired before. They've never inherited assets before, but we've done it hundreds, if not thousands of times. So having somebody to go in there, one, to help them, but two, that doesn't have a conflict of interest. It's not looking to sell them a product. Um, Really, it's just a service. It's inclusive of our services. So a client that has a million dollars with us gets the same services that a client that has $10 million with us. It's a truly uh, unique fiduciary approach uh, to doing business. And people really appreciate it because so many times, um, in my experience, clients have these traumatic life events. You have your uh, spouse that just loses a husband to cancer, right? And usually it's one person in the family that is doing all the finance. So who do I go to? Who can I trust, right? Because when somebody passes away, they know there's inheritance. A lot of wolves are circling, right? So who who can help me retitle these accounts? Who can help me update beneficiaries? Who can help me update the things that I don't even know are coming, right? So that's kind of where we step in. I'm not sure you'll be able to have this off the top of your head, but one of the best ways that I've learned over the years is when you see a, sort of a real problem show up that either you have a solution for or you realize, wow, that needed to be dealt with before this problem showed up. So in in your practice, can you think of anything that maybe listeners could glean from this and maybe say, okay, wow, that's something we really want to take care of before this happens, or uh, maybe this is something we should have discussed with a beneficiary or anything come to mind? Yeah. So when we sign on a client, we have a checklist, right? We have a planning action item and that goes through everything from your investments to your insurance, to your estate planning, um, to your beneficiary designations. We just kind of go down the list. It's driven by the client by importance. So for you, it might be more important to tackle all of your estate planning stuff. You know, I would be remiss if I didn't just check every single item and you'd be surprised how many times people tell me, oh, no, I have this. I have an estate planning attorney. Well, let one of our attorneys review it, right? We're not gaining anything out of it. We're not replacing your estate planning attorney, 
but let's try to get a second opinion. Much like you would with a doctor, if you got a diagnosis, you would want to get a second opinion. So that is what we do. We'll step in and get a second opinion. And a lot of times we hear, I didn't know that, or I didn't realize I still had my deceased sister as the trustee, or I didn't realize all of this money was going in there and it's potentially opening up liability for a divorce or things of that nature for my kids. Or, you know, hey, I just had a situation where, you know, a client was going to give the money to her son, but her son now, you know, just can't handle the money either because they are physically not able to from a disease or maybe they are unable to, to handle money because of some drug addiction or whatever the case may be, or maybe it's a disability, right? So, you know, having the foresight, knowing your client and knowing that that is coming down the pipeline and tackling it before it gets there is really important. People really appreciate it. I want to back up just a little bit, you, you know, because we spoke about how you went from one bank to, to another, and you, you know, and now you've gone into the RIA space. From an education standpoint, have you ever, like, have you taken any further educational? There we go. Sorry. Undertakings, have you done anything further than, than just the uh, original degree that you did? Yes. Yeah, so um, I got my CFP. So it's a certified financial planner. And then I got my CHFC, which is Charter Financial Consultant. So a little bit more advanced planning. Then I went and got my MBA with uh, concentration in finance. And then when I was doing the planning role that I was at in my previous, I felt like, and I tell people that that was like me getting my master's degree in planning, right? Because you would get these $100 million plus estates and you're doing planning for, you know, people that are in ultra high net worth and super high tax brackets. So you're doing advanced planning, idgets, slats, you're doing charitable planning. Um, so you get experience. It's one thing to read about it, but it's another thing to actually get experience administering these estate. We just administered um, this year, you know, hundred million plus estate, right? Not a lot of people can say they've gone through that from start to finish, you know, and, you know, done it successfully. Yeah. And that is definitely a, I would almost call that baptism by fire-ish. You know, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's the experience of having seen the challenges that can arise and then overcoming them and seeing what... what. Uh, so, you know, it sounds like you've had a very rewarding and, inter- and interesting journey, you know, having started out, how you started out and then, you know, added to your education along the way. And now you're... So your position now, are you a, a lead? Um, are you a lead on the team? Or how does it work within the company itself? Like, do you, does somebody call you up and say, hey... Amanda, I want you to be my guy. And then you've got like seven other people that you bring in or were you one of those seven who somebody brings in? How does it, like, in that sense, how, how do things operate over there? Yeah, so, I mean, I work on a team and um, the lead there would be the co-founder um, of the firm who would be the lead there. But there are certain clients that I take the lead on and I'm the lead advisor on them. It just depends on the client. It depends on their needs. Um, and it depends on, you know, where I get it. If it's a referral from one of my existing clients and I'm the lead person on that relationship, it's a referral from you know, one of my uh, coworkers clients, then they're the lead on it. And then I'm kind of just the backup on that relationship, but we do kind of work as a team. Um, we have portfolio managers that manage the accounts. So I don't have to be in front of my computer all day trading accounts. We have a financial planning team that does the financial plans. So they take care of that portion and the state planning team that takes care of the state reviews and things of that nature. We also just added trustee services. So now we have a trust department that if a client wants to make us their successor trustee, we have the ability to take on that as a relationship. 
That's awesome. Yeah. So you have um, there's like a portfolio management team in the in the background, but as the FA, the financial advisor on the on the lead role you take, there must be what suitability forms that you go through and try and gauge a client's uh, risk tolerance. How do you, how do you feel that's working? Do you think that's adequate or? You know, there's, there's a whole bunch of talk about behavioral finance. I know that's very interesting, but how do you incorporate any of that into your practice or dealing with your client's risk tolerance? Every client gets a financial plan. So based on their financial plan, that's where we usually decide how much risk they can afford to take. So it's a little bit more at the bank. It was just a suitability standard, right? Are you good enough? Or is this okay enough for your situation? Here we take it step further. So we're looking at your tax return. We're looking at your estate plan. We're looking at your real estate. We're looking at your mortgages to see how much risk is appropriate for you to take. Now, for some clients, they might have to take on more risk to meet their goals. For some clients, we say, well, you only need a four to 5% return a year to meet your goals. So you don't actually have to take on a lot of risk, right? Uh, Or maybe we take on calculated risk with this portion of your assets, but not so calculated portion with this portion. So that part is agreed upon between myself and the clients around their financial plan. So with their goals in mind, with their assets in mind, it's really personalized and customized to their situation because every situation is different. I mean, in the investment world, then do you have a favorite type of thing? Is there, you know, there's been so many developments now with uh, just traditional asset allocation and the momentum following and then just charting and then, levered products and managed futures and all manner of things. So um, what's, what is uh, like, what's a go-to recommendation for you given a, again, I know it's hard to say an average person, but give me a a sense of what, what comes out of the portfolio. Yeah. I would say with most people, you kind of start off with a 50, 50 or 60, 40 allocation, and then you tweak up or down based on their needs um, but uh, typically, we don't want to tie up a lot of their assets in illiquid funds. I mean, the worst thing you can do is put somebody in a liquid product and then, you know, six months later, an emergency happens or a death happens or, you know, my pipe bursts and now I need an extra 100000 that was unplanned, right? So planning for those unplanned events is key, having liquidity. Um, and then personally, I like to put um, tax inefficient assets in retirement accounts, tax efficient assets in taxable accounts, go a little bit more passive on the retirement accounts to lower fees because you have a longer term tax horizon, go a little bit more active in taxable accounts because we're doing some active tax loss harvesting um, every single year for them. We've talked to a couple of people who talk a lot about alternatives and other such do you guys embrace any, I mean, do you embrace any of that type of stuff? Like, you know, the, the, the liquid alternatives, the illiquid alternatives, yeah. so on and so forth. Do you, do you do anything in, in that space much? Or Yeah, we have um, liquid alternatives built into our model. So most clients have some form of liquid alternatives into it. In addition, certain clients can have the ability to get into illiquid alternatives, mostly private real estate or private credit. Uh, but that's usually unique to that particular client um, because those particular products are tied up, we usually say, for at least five years, right? We want them to have a five to 10-year time horizon on those assets, and we let them know, hey, these are you know, 
uh, more of a diversifier in your portfolio. You're not really going to touch these for five to 10 years, whether it be private real estate and or private credit. And then we try to locate them in the more appropriate account. So for example, private real estate is very tax efficient. You get to take depreciation. The income is tax advantage. That makes more sense in a taxable account. Private credit is higher yielding. It's tax inefficient. So it's probably better allocated in a retirement account. So those are the types of decisions we're, we're making. Now, it's also tied to the client's age, right? Because if they're an RMD age, you probably don't want to put illiquid assets in a retirement account. That's what I think a lot of people fail to realize is, you know, at some point you have to liquidate these assets for RMD purposes and you don't want to put illiquid assets in retirement accounts. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah it's good I have a client right now that I transferred in and I'm trying to liquidate an illiquid asset and another advisor bought and it's going on three years and I'm still trying to liquidate it. Yikes. Yeah. What, um, how about custody? Do you guys have a white label relationship or are you in one of the big houses like Schwab or Fidelity or? Yeah, we custody, um, through Schwab Fidelity. It used to be TD as well. So now it's just, uh, Schwab and Fidelity and it goes really well because the names are, are, are huge, right? Their services are really good. Their offerings are really well and they're low cost. So we're able to keep the cost, uh, for our clients at a minimum. And we are able to buy and leverage our relationships with them, whether it's for banking products or, you know, charitable products um, or um, uh, uh, lines of credit, things of that nature. Did, did you have a bigger block at TD or Schwab or is Fidelity? We have our biggest block at Schwab. I see. Yes. I, I prefer the service at Schwab. They're, they're just very responsive. We have a very good relationship with them. They're on top of things. So, Heard my personal preference is Schwab. Interesting to hear. We just did the migration. Our firm was about ninety nine percent TD. TD. Uh, so for us, it's still we're in the learning process. We're in the honeymoon phase. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> exactly. We had we had to transition a number of clients over from TD to Schwab. So far, so good. So far, it's been seamless. I'm sure there'll be some hiccups and some wrinkles here and there. But I find that the institutional side of Schwab is very responsive, very good. So for the day-to-day activities, the wires, um, statements, uh, transfers, money links, they're very good, very responsive. And do you do your your um, allocations? Is it through some sort of a third-party asset manager or like a TAMP? Or do you do your own SMAs, brokerage account by brokerage account in your in your firm? Uh, our So our products and our accounts are basically decided by an investment committee. So we have a, an investment committee that kind of decides the models and we don't have our own mutual funds. So whether we pick a Vanguard for small cap or JP Morgan for mid cap, our job is to go out and find the best managers for every single asset class. We do pick an individual stock model for large cap because we feel like we can um, outperform there. We have enough research in-house. So we do uh, research in-house. We have institutional research. Uh, we build customized portfolios in-house. We also have the ability to uh, use SMAs. So you might say, you know what, I want to use this asset manager for municipal bonds, right? Taxes are very high in California. I want individual municipal bonds. So for that particular case or for that particular client, I'm going to use an asset manager, an SMA for this particular asset class. Great. 
Well, you've come uh, certainly a long way, a full circle into, I think, the right spot, the right pond. Actually, you're ocean-sized uh, <laughs> in the RIA space. So it's great to have you on the, in this in this environment. Are there any other, you know, is there like a, any question you were hoping we would ask you that maybe we haven't gotten to? Well, for me, I like to focus very much so on the behavioral finance side. So my wife is a therapist. So I think I'm very uh, in tune with people's um, emotions and biases. And I really try to steer them towards making the right decision because people make very emotional decisions, right? A lot of the decisions are driven by life events, right? Deaths inheritances, selling a business, uh, retiring. So you got a lot of different emotions, uh, fear, anxiety, and, and a lot of times that freezes people from acting at all, right? A lot of fear of asking the questions or a fear of working with somebody. So I try to delve deep into those fears and really work with them to overcome them. And one of my strong points, I believe, is keeping things very simple. So I am the child of immigrants. I was the first in my family to attend college. Part of how I got into this business and part of why I enjoy it so much is growing up, my parents didn't speak very much English. So I had to interpret a lot of financial documents for them in a simple way, right? So so how do you interpret a mortgage, insurance documents from Spanish to English, right? You can't use fancy language. You have to keep it very simple. Right. So how do you find the ways to convey complex information in a very simple way where people can make a decision? All you really want them to do is make an informed, simple decision that is benefiting for them. Now, people don't really want to be told what to do or what to say. So you just make the decision easier. Option A, option B, option C. And based on how I know you or based on what I know about you, Here's what I would recommend, but it's up to you, right? What we're providing is peace of mind. You know, I think the best ability for an advisor to do is to give clients a reassurance that somebody is there looking out for them. Yeah. The worst thing you can do is try to tell people how they should live their life or what decision to make or not to spend their money. You really want to just be the person there that's advocating for them to make the right decision for them at this point in time, right? We'll never know if the decision was right until time passes, but was this decision right at this moment in your life with the information we had at hand? Yeah, that's my favorite uh, summary, basically, is you can have, you can make a great decision and have a bad outcome, or you can make a terrible decision and have a good outcome. And it's really important to know the difference Correct. so that you can repeat it going forward. So, yeah. well, I think that's a great place to wrap up. Fernando Reyes with EP Wealth Advisors. It's been a pleasure getting to know you a little bit better. And I uh, hope you enjoyed the interview and look forward to staying in touch. Thank you so much. This interview also may contain statements that constitute endorsements of measured risk portfolios, also known as MRP. Please note that any such statements are not made by clients of MRP, but by representatives of other investment advisory firms that work with MRP. No compensation was offered or given in exchange for these statements. However, a conflict of interest exists due to the incentive to give an endorsement in the interest of a good future working relationship between the endorser and MRP.